Welcome to this podcast series asking the question, can art save us? I'm starting the first national and international conversation about courage and curiosity. What do these qualities really mean and why does it make a big difference to our mental, societal and democratic health? I talk to award-winning and diverse artists across the arts to explore these qualities in their lives and work, both to inspire and for us all to learn. I'm exploring why we need these qualities to help change the global epidemic of mental illness, loneliness, polarisation of our communities and even global conflict. If the arts cultivate courage and curiosity, I'm asking the question, can art save us? Can you imagine making an appointment to see Dr. Lovely or better still, the fairy tale doctor? Would you be open to experiencing the spiritual practice of shamanism through storytelling as a way of navigating your life or finding a compass for your soul? Could we all benefit from connecting to something sacred to help us find ourselves in our ever complex and intense world? My guest today is Elizabeth Lovely, soon to be a professor, indeed a fairy tale doctor, and her shamanic pathway began with the breaking of her brain when she had to find new ways to interpret her life. I'm also surprised more things weren't broken along the way since Elizabeth has hung precariously from tall ladders in the name of arts festivals and has jumped on her motorbike to simply follow which way the wind blows and see where it takes her. But today we're talking about a deeply held respect for shamanism, indigenous spiritual practices and the art of storytelling. This isn't about conjuring up the magic of theatre from her early career days or some kind of trickery. This is about finding connection to live better and with particular interest in our end of life experience and the moment of death. This is someone who may offer a cup of courage or caution tea, but the secrets in that recipe might be steeped inside of you that only a shaman and a story can help reveal. Hello and welcome, Elizabeth Lovely. Hello. I think I want to come and see this doctor too. <laughs> she sounds <We> are- amazing. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> we are very booked up in advance. <laughs> <laughs> well, your reviews are undoubtedly uh, testimony. Um, in fact, let's skip ahead to some to some reviews um, to give the, the the listeners some context. Your reviews include um, incredible, magical medicine, healing, uplifting, and life-changing. And one review said, the storytelling is fantastic. You can see yourself in the story, sometimes as the main person and sometimes as a bystander. And I curiously thought, how does this doctor manage the responsibility of being a guide working in a world of story spirits? That's a, 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 an ongoing question. Uh, I remember asking it once uh, and being told I was just the phone line and to not worry about it too much because it, it feels such a responsibility when it's put into those terms. Um, and so I, it, it's, it's about that. How can you be as present as possible and and allow for vulnerability and intimacy, but kind of get out of the way at the same time. Yeah. So do you feel that you're consciously judging the process of, of the story that you're sharing in terms of the listener's experience? 
No. Uh, I, I sometimes will have an idea of the story that that wants to come through, particularly if it's, say, like a, a traditional fairy tale. Like I, I did one up at Loughborough University last year of Snow White. So I might kind of, it's almost like being woken in the middle of the night by this little sprite or something that will tap you on the shoulder and say, hey, it's my turn now. But that's as, as much as I know. And I've learned over the years to really trust that whatever comes out of my mouth, as it were, and and is shared in my bodily movements in the moment of telling the story is exactly what everybody who is present, and that includes the the non-human peoples as well as the human peoples. This is the story that we're we need to hear and almost on an unconscious level we're creating in that moment. Uh, and I'm very much of the view that it's not to be recorded and it, it just lives there and then. Uh, and so I see my job really as the I suppose it is that idea of the the midwife of how am I able through my physical presence able to to bring bring it into a corporality uh, and and offer it up and and it is it's an ongoing conversation of do we have then as any kind of performative though I don't think of storytelling as performative I think it of it more as a ceremony but do we have a responsibility to the people that are there that are receiving what we're offering um and and that's a an ongoing debate really and i don't think there are any clear answers to that and so if we put this in um a traditional context if you like in terms of the role shamans uh had um would you agree that it's mostly perceived as healers in their communities. And when you mentioned seeing yourself as some kind of midwife, is that how you see your role? Is it a community role around healing and care? Yeah, I think I think so. It's it's taken me a long time to to understand that. Um, and I think part of it has been that I've spent a year going to a, a particular spot in nature every day and, and carrying these questions of um, what is my research? What is my storytelling? How is it of, of use in the world? Why? Why does it matter to create in this kind of shamanic way? Uh, and that was the overriding thing, I suppose, was that, that of the community, that it can't work in isolation. And I don't think uh, which is probably a broad kind of brush to to paint with, if you like, that I don't know if any art can exist without a community, uh, that it has to be not necessarily for something, but of service in a way. I'm not sure if that makes sense or answers your question. Well, no, it does, because um, I, I felt it, it came across, um, you know, just just from your website alone, that there is a, a, a community emphasis. Um, you know, you refer to friendship circles, for example. It is very much about um, connection. Um, one of the quotes actually uh, used on your website um, that may add to this context of that community role is... Life is change, but shamanism is change with power. So what is that power or 
how is that power helping or serving the communities you work with? It's um, The quote is from Jonathan Horwitz, who's one of my shamanic teachers. Um, and he talks very eloquently on these different types of power. And he uses, I think, it, I'm not sure if it's uh, a Danish or Swedish, so I apologize if I get it wrong, uh, to how we think of terms of power. In, and he uses craft and macht. And macht is what we think of. I suppose within the Western world, when we think of power, it's somebody who's dominant in a way and has the power over somebody else. So we think of the first example that comes to mind, I suppose, is like political power or corporate power. And, and so there's very much this sense of us and them within that type of uh, macht power, power over, power above. Whereas Within the shamanic context of power, it's about a power with. How are and coming back to the community, how are we in community? How are we in service? And again, it's the problematic terms because I think we automatically think of service as being something subservient. And it's it's it feels to me it's more about how are we stepping into our place within the system in in the most beneficial, how are we of of good and and again that it becomes problematic with the terms and so much of shamanism is this felt understanding and I think that's why story is such a a, a powerful <laughs> power filled vehicle is because we receive story with our bodies before we receive it with our intellect and so much of when we try and understand like terms of power and service um, it. It become it comes from the mind, and so it's a constant battle of of how do we define, how do we speak? When, ironically, working with story, there's sometimes this sense of lacking that it 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 doesn't bring across as much as we want to say. Um, but to come back to what you're saying with with power, is my understanding of it is this sense of harmony, uh, harmony, harmonious living, and flow. It, it's it's almost like an energetics if that makes sense. Yeah, and I was interested in whether power um, also relates um, to empowerment um, in that through the power of storytelling, um, there's a role that you could say is similar to meditation, that you're, you're inviting the listener to displace all that noise of their daily life, all of their daily worries, for example, um, to focus on this, this different world, this creation of story that's taking place. And in many ways, that can be very empowering because we are so constrained by the industrialization of our own minds. Yes. Uh, and what's beautiful, I think, when you say about story and the empowerment of it is that we can find ourselves anywhere in the story and I don't feel personally I don't feel it's my job as, a, as somebody who carries story to tell you what that story means or to tell you where where it fits or where it might mirror and and that's I think where it becomes disempowering but to sit and be able to come into relationship and to treat that story as a living being that's in conversation with you, that's that's able to mirror or support or articulate for you in ways that you can't. It becomes 
like I was saying before about this idea of friendship, it becomes an ally for you to to step into your own empowerment. Would you say it's also a healthy way to cultivate curiosity, which I'm also interested in as a way of helping our well-being, developing curiosity away from all of those constraints, those restrictions, those limits that we place on ourselves and, and how we think? Yes. <laughs> yeah, I think it's it's one of the things I learn more and more of working shamanically, working with story is it's almost like the, the beginner's mind is often spoken of and the child mind. And that doesn't mean to be childish or emotionally immature, but it's about to approach things in that sense of innocence, which which I think is tied so much with curiosity. And Hillman speaks, James Hillman spoke a lot about uh, restoring and um, and he talked about it in within the psychiatric and psych- psychological setting. But for me, it is about how somewhere as we mature and become adults, we lose that sense of innocence and curiosity. Uh, and it's my hope that story can in some way inspire us to to go out into the world in these new ways and to hold these different versions of reality and get excited and and, and not immediately... I think it might be Tom Waits who, who is quoted of, of saying, don't, I don't want to rush to look onto the internet and, and be told what something is. I want to wonder about it a bit more. And I think curiosity is the root map into that, into this, this other ways of being and this sense of connection. And again, what we come back to this idea of community. Yeah. And I, I know that's where I would certainly want to pour a cup of caution, if you like, in terms of the immense power the internet has now, um, but also um, the decision-making that is happening for us, whether it's through algorithms, choosing um, what we want to see and don't want to see. Uh, It's effectively denying our own research and our, our own curiosity. And of course, the ongoing alarm around what's authentic and what's fake. Mm. I was going to say, I don't know if I have an answer for that. It's it's a huge debate and it's, it's incredibly unsettling. So I'd ask you what you think. Yeah. So I would say, you know, would you say that that increases the importance of the wonder of storytelling? It's almost it's almost increasing the importance of story time that we have as children that might be in the classroom or or at home, but to genuinely invest in cultivating that experience of storytelling and wonder and opening our minds. Do you think that that would be, in fact, a remedy in your medicine chest I love that idea. Yes, absolutely. Uh, and part of it for me is the, is the stepping away entirely from the digital and, and coming back into the physicality. And even if that's your, and I would say just, and, and I, I use that 
Mm, I think that's the wrong word to use, really, when I say that even if it's just yourself, because we're never just ourselves. And I think for me, this is part of how how stories can bring that in, working with them shamanically and this idea of the animistic, that everything is alive, everything has intelligence, everything has spirit, uh, and how we can kind of ground back into our physicality, because I think that's the danger sometimes, that digital technology is wonderful, but but we we become Descartes' head in a jar. We, 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 we lose this, this way of being in the world, I think, a little bit. That, um, uh, and constantly, I find it myself when I'm researching for my doctorate, of, of getting lost in rabbit holes of words and information. And, and I lose sight of where they land within my body and that, that really strong wisdom that we hold within us that way, that we've, I think we've lost how, how to trust it. Yeah, and that's interesting because I think trust invites or needs quite a lot of courage. We, you know, even even to trust ourselves, trust our instincts. There is um, a significant degree of of courage involved, and shamanism is largely perceived as an alternative space away from, for example, mainstream medicine. And I wondered if you had to even challenge yourself um, as you increasingly focused on that space, um, if you felt that you were going against the grain and, and if that was difficult or even fearful for you at times. I'm still in that. I think I'm very much still in that conversation. Um, and yeah, it is that there is that constant, which I think it's finding the right balance. I think it's healthy to question. And I have, say, when I've been in a trance state and uh, there's whether I am or I am not speaking to to myself or speaking to another being, and I've asked this question and sometimes uh, because there's been that doubt there, it's like, am I just talking to myself? And the answer was, well, yes, probably. But why does that matter? Why why cannot the wisdom be held within myself, within my bones, if you like, in a way? Um, and it, it comes up, as I say, with, with researching for a doctorate, there's this very expected formula that you've got to sit within, that you've got to meet a certain criteria, yet at the same time, you're supposed to be bringing an original contribution in, into this academic space. And so it's it's constantly having to question when you feel like you're pushing beyond that and you're not fitting in the norm. And I know that's not exclusive to the academic environment. I think it's anywhere where you're not going with, you see it so much on social media, when you're not agreeing with or or don't feel aligned with the majority discussions it can be incredibly isolating and yeah it, it it leads you to doubt the truth of what's coming from your own soul your own heart if you like um so it's coming back to what I said before it's finding that balance it's it's learning to trust what we we again it's this felt sense this felt knowing almost like the gut reaction if you like when something feels true and authentic and and right for us and to have a healthy level of skepticism and humor and again it's coming back to where the curiosity comes into that that marriage of having the courage to say 
I don't agree with with this truth that's being told that this is not my version of truth and to hold the possibility with curiosity that there might actually be multiple truths happening at the same time. So interestingly, how would you say you've cultivated your sense of trust? Because that's probably part of your armour, perhaps, in that it enables you to tread this path, no, no matter how alternative it may seem to other people. Oh, I I was laughing to myself when when you asked that question. It's like I have no idea how to answer that. Um, and also coming back to the teacher we talked about before, Jonathan Horowitz, is this idea of trusting from a shamanic perspective is is trusting our allies, our spirit teacher, our spirit guides. And he always said that he trusts them more than he trusts himself. And and sometimes there's just, I suppose it's, it's like things don't, I was thinking about this and um, bear with me, I might ramble a bit as I try and find the way to the answer, which is how it often is, isn't it? That you have to think aloud a lot to go, ah, it means this. Um, where was I? So it's sometimes when I was thinking of courage, it's like, why is it I do things that other people look at and think, why have you done that? Or, you know, like with the idea of doing a vision fast of going into the woods for for four or five days on my own. And it just doesn't occur to me not to do it. And I think in some ways there's that level of trust. It's like I have that information, if that makes sense. It, it it's like it's it's in my head just as a thing that exists in the world. And I know that sounds vague and I can't, trust is such a, it's a, it's a slippery eel to try and hold. Every time I feel, every time I try and get a clear definition of it, it's gone. And suppose it's, it's sometimes it's about integrity. It's like, does this feel aligned for me or or it's that tapping on the shoulder is coming back to the bodily sensation again of does my stomach feel uncomfortable in this situation is something screaming at me no this isn't right or is it just something that feels bleedingly obvious um, I think I'm just tangling us all in knots trying to define it. And, and maybe that's part of what trust is. Trust is uh, trusting the right answer, trusting the right course of action. Trust is in and of itself, isn't it? It's like it's this con- constant contained object that, that can only de- be defined and understood as it exists in its own right. I don't even know if any of that makes sense. Well, I, I think it it certainly speaks to, and something that comes up in mindfulness practice, that we do need to cultivate um, trusting ourselves, trusting our instincts, like when you refer to that feeling in your stomach. When we have those experiences of something just telling us not to do something, even though we don't quite know why, but we do know to trust it. There, there's something mystical about it. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I I wonder if it, I think it's, maybe it's been put into the realms of mystical to make us distrust it. It is mystical and it is magical in the best sense of the word, 
but again, I think it's this sense of a, a, a bodily knowing that we've been touching on quite a few times already. As we're saying, it's like you get that nervousness or, or what I think of almost like an animal-like heckles going up on, on the back of the neck. Something just is there disturbing our field of awareness. And because it's been... I suppose sometimes dismissed in this as uh, woo woo or nincompoop, or like you say, of that there's this outside agency, and I, I can't say where that first came from. That's teaching us to distrust it. It's almost, and I think this it, it comes into I suppose what I've been looking at when we we're talking before about trusting our body in in terms of health and illness and medicalization. There's always this expert that that knows more. And that comes into what you touched on before of this idea of empowerment and disempowerment of not listening to, to, to our own selves. Yeah. And cultural prejudices can, can take many forms. So for example, there can be the, the prejudice within Western medicine that may not embrace Eastern medicine, for example, and also actually some of the words you you, you just use, like woo-woo, um, you know, linguistic prejudice. So, for example, listeners today who may be simply exploring, you know, what is this sh- sh- shamanism and storytelling, may well have associations with the occult, religious ecstasy, the supernatural, voodoo, you know, all of which can conjure up fearful and, and, and negative ideas and experiences. Yet, if, if anyone was to look at your website, the emphasis is entirely gentle and peaceful and about healing. Mm. Yeah, I think that's the thing, isn't it? All, the, all our language has got so wrapped up in these meanings that we don't know how to navigate it anymore and and that's that fearfulness isn't it of well what will think people think of me if i say i'm doing this this is probably the first time i've spoken openly about uh working with shamanism in this context because there's still that sense of how will i be judged and and the term that i use myself that is woo woo and become dismissive of something that's a, a huge aspect of my life and i think has has saved me on many a occasion when i've been on the brink of despair and and not knowing. Uh, uh, And it can be as simple as, uh, for me, it's a very nature-based and it is about grounding in reality and and it's an ordinariness. That's one of the things I feel most passionate about is to bring it out of that elitist or isolating language and for it to be, again, the sense of community and how we are in relation to everybody else. And ultimately, can we be kind? Can we be uh, good people in, in whatever that means for you uh, with, as you come back to before, with curiosity? Can we meet everything with curiosity and with a delight and, 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 and a genuine interest to know? And shamanism could be as simple as talking to your cat when you get home and, and listening to what your cat's saying in response, or it is for me anyway. <laughs> Sometimes the cat has the best advice, I think. (laughs) I wonder whether um, critical thinking around cultural appropriation, um, you know, has really impacted some of the prejudices. Um, So 
Today, we'll often hear the phrase new age, for example, um, but that's not necessarily how you might choose to position yourself or or perceive yourself. Um, there's a kind of rebranding, isn't there, of ancient spiritual traditions from indigenous cultures. How do you manage to position yourself and your core beliefs, knowing there is that issue of cultural appropriation going on in the West? Um, it's hugely problematic and it's, it's a conversation that I try and have constantly with myself and it falls into two spaces. So from a story perspective, most of the stories that I work with uh, I would class as original stories that I haven't, they're not stories that I've seen written or recorded anywhere else before. Uh, when it comes to traditional stories, like I mentioned before, Snow White, then I tend to, it, it's, a, uh, it's such a difficult um, balance to get right. So most of the stories I work with are the ones, are literally the ones that wake me up at, at three in the morning. And, and I feel like they're there in the bed having a conversation with me or, or they'll appear to me in dreams. So I try and trust that I'm being found by the story um, and, and let it kind of speak through me in the way that feels right in that moment. But also I've been on the reverse of this and knew of a, a a storyteller who's a dear friend and she spoke a story that is from Lincolnshire and I feel and I immediately felt very protective of the not for myself because I'm from Lincolnshire but for the landscape that it wasn't being acknowledged in her telling of the story so it's it it's a constantly difficult conversation to have and I think it's I think personally, it's incredibly important to have this conversation all the time. And I remember the storyteller Jan Blake asking about this when, if we're looking to stories outside our own culture, outside our own, or I think of it outside of my own bloodline. What's wrong with the stories in your own country? Uh, I don't have an answer to that, but I think it's an important question to ask ourselves. What What is it about a particular story that we feel we need to tell in that moment. With shamanism, the, my training was in what's classed as core shamanism. And there's an anthropologist called Hana in the 50s, 60s, 70s, uh, well into the 80s and 90s, uh, who on the back of scientists and, and anthropologists and studies like Mercia Eliade was looking at what are the commonalities so say quite often the a drum is used and that will be to used in healing or to alter the state of consciousness like the trance state like you might do with a a mantra uh, a meditation chant something like that just to remove you from what's thought of as ordinary reality for a moment or two which we we all, probably all experience when we get um, immersed in a piece of music or a film and and so there was it was looking at across the world and all these indigenous cultures, what do they all have in common? What do they all use? And so he kind of came up with this concept of the core shamanism, that it doesn't matter where you go in the world, it's, it, it is used, as I say, like the drum. Uh, and so it's not felt that it's appropriating or taking something from that culture. Uh, and then... For me, it's about what is my direct experience? What is my direct relationship? 
and how is that informing? So, and, and that is in the way I've been taught it, shamanism is the fundamental thing. It's like you learn the basics that are common to everybody that can be allied. So there's, there's not a religious emphasis. It's whatever is you're bringing to it. So I might be Christian or I might be Hindu or I might be Buddhist or that's my personal relationship with the with my shamanic tools, if you like, if my shamanic way of doing things. Um, and so it, it, it comes down to with story or shamanism is what am I experiencing in the moment? As soon as I start playing that drum, what I what what thoughts are then coming into my head? What entities, if you like, are speaking to me? What am I noticing the most? And that I think is what's most valid and and hope to be in a place that's honoring where it might touch into other parts. But we're a mongrel nation, really, as as people in Britain. We're an island nation. We are, I don't know if there's anything that is a, a, a true essence if you like, that everything we have comes from all these different cultures that have come into this landscape. I've lost you. Hello. I've, your connection has gone temporarily, Elizabeth, and I'm going to stay online. Well, that was interesting, Elizabeth, and an unexpected break. And um, I think you had mentioned previously that we're not necessarily alone when we're exchanging stories. How would you explain that, that sudden unexpected break? Uh, my first thought was clearly I was saying something that was rubbish and not being agreed with. And, and I think that's, as we touched on before, is to have humour. It's not to, to take the work lightly and not to take shamanic work without respect um but it is to be able to just have a little bit of humor with it there's one of my favorite things ever that a spirit teacher said to me was be prepared to look stupid but don't be stupid it's <laughs> and i love that it's been my mantra can i look stupid but not be stupid and I, I love that because that that also to me speaks to courage that if someone is prepared to look stupid purely a definition uh, that's that's being imposed but is prepare to is prepared to carry that in order to do what they know isn't stupid is in itself an act of courage what you were saying before that trusting trusting that however for me courage as well is that however vulnerable however scared however there's a part of me is wanting to to just hide under the blanket is there's another part that is still gently urging me forward and and I think it's that trusting that yeah I am I've there's been occasions where I've I've stood in a uh, in the middle of a park in the rain in a bright red mac talking to a tree and there's a dog walker walking past it's like I she must think I'm crazy you know <laughs> and then realize that I'm staring in the uh, walking in the same direction as her and then think because this was what I was felt I was doing what's called a medicine walk where you kind of have an intention and a thought and you just follow whatever uh 
stands out for you, almost like has a, a glimmer or a shimmer to it. And you just trust that and follow it. Like you're saying before that, having that curiosity. So, oh, what will happen if I go this way? What will happen if I do this? Um, and be prepared to look a bit bonkers in the process. Um, but by whose definition? And I think that's something we touched on before, isn't it? This, uh, this dismissiveness sometimes to uh, in what feels important for us that we have the courage to step forward and do it but still we have to make excuses for it in a way i don't know well i think the it's the, the role of definition actually is something that that interests me i think i think definition is perhaps problematic in itself that we have such a need to have everything defined in very clearly labelled but rigid boxes, perhaps. So, for example, thinking about um, shamanic cultures, our ancestors would accept the sacred as real. But today, in our modern context, that would be far more questioned as something that's unreal or, or fantasy or going back to the other prejudiced language that we touched on, you know, voodoo, um, occult, supernatural. There's an undermining of something that was once simply accepted as real. And a part of everyday life. There was no separation, I think. Uh, and that's somewhere that happened, didn't it? It, it? it became, I'm not saying it's all, but the example that springs to mind is that you you put on your best clothing and you go to church on a Sunday. It, it, it's, it has this, and when you say about definition, in one respect, I think there is an importance to this idea of, of definition within a ceremony or, or a ritual, almost like you're marking the boundary, but but also to allow that porosity to to move and blend and and flow within life, almost like the the moon changes each night, or the or the tide goes in and out. To allow that that kind of sense of non rigidity, if you like. Whereas I think we've we've stepped into this. Yes, as you say, it, it has to fit into this box and it can't be outside of that in any way. And I think that's where we become a bit lost, perhaps, by by trying to fit into one of those categories. And as you're saying before, of of judging because it, it has this stigma attached to it if we fall into a particular box, rather than saying, well, what if I just throw everything out of the boxes and and see what new creation I can make with it? Hmm. In many ways, perhaps our shamanic teachers are shamanic rebels. When you look back, do you think you always were a kind of shamanic rebel until you found your focus on storytelling and wanting to insist in the kindest way that we do allow ourselves to have open minds and to consider the possibility of other realms. See, this is the the uh, almost like a, a, a trick question in a way. It's like, are you a rebel if you consider yourself a rebel? And uh, I don't know. I don't. It's not a term I've ever thought of, but it's one. I, but also, it's one that I kind of 
I suppose, caught in a way. I like the idea of being a bit rebellious and um, what I've often termed as kindly mischief making. And and can we disrupt things in a in a way that isn't jarring and conflictual? So that which is an old practice in itself of the idea of the trickster and the jester and is a very strong the trickster particularly is a very strong in most mythologies around the world and shamanic cultures as well uh but it doesn't so i don't i don't know if i've always thought of myself as a rebel i think more i've always tried to find where i might belong and with shamanism that feels like a homecoming yeah, it's interesting because I think even the word rebel carries certain prejudices. It's easy to leap to um, naughtiness and anarchy that isn't necessarily with any kind of kind purpose. But actually, you could reflect on someone like Gandhi, who would have been positioned as a rebel, but was actually a spiritual freedom fighter, for example. Um, I suppose what interests me about the word rebel is that it's maybe a reminder that to some degree a rebellion is needed in terms of our mental health that we do need to be much more aware of the constraints that are imposed and that we start to impose ourselves in terms of the limits of our thinking and and something that again the power of storytelling can help unlock it's come to what you're saying before of the the definitions of what box we we put ourselves in and this uh, and again this is just my personal view of this over reliance on medication and it it frightens me that some of the like an antidepressant is dis, uh, prescribed for somebody the and the side effect might be suicidal ideation or aggression uh, and I think storytelling can come in twofold. One is the power of the story themselves to to offer to be a container to able for us to pour into uh, angst, if you like, but also to give a voice in terms of how we might find a way to speak our own stories. And this is being within narrative medicine. This is being looked at more and more as a field of how can there, there be a bridge between the, um, I suppose, the, the the person wanting to be healed and the healer, for want of better terms. And going back to finding the courage in terms of wanting to be a healer, for example, particularly when it's going against the grain, when it's in an alternative space. It was interesting um, reading about your reflections on female ancestors reading blood and you commented it has taken me quite a few years to find my own courage to speak out about working in this way and so for the listeners what what is your contemporary take on that ancient practice how are you reading blood mm. uh, so I believe that um so there's this idea of oracles and omens, and quite often in, in a lot of ancient cultures, they would be 
sought out to take advice from. So similar now, I suppose, like we might look in at horoscopes in the newspapers or we might have a, a dream interpretation was a, a, a very huge practice. So I believe that there was a time when women would go into the cave when they were menstruating and they would let a, their blood drop to the floor and they would read the blood, they would read them for what's thought of as auguries or omens to then take into their community, their clan, their tribe, to look at how they can best support and advise and guide for the month to come. And so my contemporary practice was to look at, I've, I'm in the process of going through menopause. And so it was look at what is what relationship, what legacy do I want to have with the the last couple of years of my blood? And how can that, how can it act? It was so it was twofold for me of how can it act almost as a, a portal, a gateway for connection. And so I would go down into the a, a dark space, a black space, and have a white cloth and bleed onto the cloth. And and it's almost like um a, a channeling, if you like, of of then to be spoken through by these very ancient beings. Or maybe it's an aspect of myself. And to see, again, to what story is there that's coming out that, and how can that support us. But it's a very taboo subject that even to even say menstrual blood, it still has a an edge of discomfort to it or, or there's a shame attached to it. And to then even say that you're physically working with it in some way, and like you're saying before that, that the occult or the, the, the superstition, and there's still so many, um, I was reading a book earlier today that was written in the eighties and it was hinting again, alluding to this idea of, uh, menstruation being unclean and, and women being, uh, shunned from the society because they were might contaminate things, and I think it's it's more about the fact there was an immense power in a bleeding woman, and that's that's uncomfortable. We don't know how to even sit with that statement. The power of a bleeding woman, the power of that blood, and certainly when I uh, Snow White, it came through very much in the telling of her, and I think uh, Red Riding Hood holds carries another idea of that aspect of going out in her red cloak into the woods to, to for her you know her first blood ready for her first sexual encounters they're there I think they are there in the stories we we just don't want to see them in that way because for whatever reason it makes us incredibly uncomfortable which maybe is again finding the courage to say but this is important for me. It's an important, if nothing else, it, it feels a very strong creative practice. So why cannot these conversations happen at the same time? And and that discomfort um, is really the function of oppression, of oppressive language. Yeah. And how, how do we move out of that then? Mm, mm, yeah, exactly. So when, when you're storytelling... Uh, you know, and you have that awareness, don't you, of oppressive linguistics, um, the the cultural prejudices our, our languages carry. Um, do you feel you're consciously navigating those choices of words uh, that you're using from all of those points of view? Interestingly, not when I'm with the story. When I'm with the story, it's it's almost like you're saying you're sort of 
beside yourself in a way. So it's it's there's, there's something about me, something about my makeup, my experiences allow me to tell a story in a particular way. And I guess that that curious, unable to define sense of trust. I absolutely trust the process. I trust the the ritual, if you like, that brings me into the space of allowing a story to speak through me. And so I I just let whatever words are there, I let them through and I try my best not to censor them. It's in conversations like this that I find I have more problematics with language and trying to f- define the right term for something that is is such a strong visceral experience that in a in a weird way kind of takes us or maybe it's not beyond language but before language i'm really interested in how this relates to the personal experience i mentioned in the introduction uh where you've you've spoken about the breaking of your brain and You've also reflected that 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 was really what opened the door for your creativity, um, that it kind of allowed a new way of life. And and depending on on how much you want to share about that experience, I'm I'm interested in, in how all of this has helped you with your your own healing. So what happened was, I suppose it would be 13 years ago now, I was diagnosed with what's called ME. And I'm sorry that I just don't have the the um, the capability to pronounce the full <laughs> medical <laughs> term of it beyond that. Uh, but it does make for a nice book that I might eventually write called From M.E. to Me. Mm. Uh, that felt quite nice. It's also known as chronic fatigue syndrome, which uh, is a controversial term because some feel that it diminishes somehow the the extremity that is felt. Uh, and I suppose it's quite often now recognised as uh, very similar to long COVID. Um, and it it devastated me completely that I and it felt almost overnight that I went from I was working in theatre in Brighton. I was uh, have a, had a, a full social life. And within days, I was suddenly like, I don't know, I can't get out of the bath. I can't feed myself. And, and that's what it felt like. All that knowledge that I'd learned when I'd studied at MA level just had gone. And I couldn't even read children's books. And so it was almost like a, yeah, that as I thought of it, it's like my brain broke. Everything in me broke. My whole definition of myself broke. And I was very fortunate that a GP that I saw at the time recognized instantly what was going on for me. And he said, just forget everything. Just And, and was very much like, and he was, pres- rather than prescribing me medication, he was prescribing me books to read. Kind of, and this was before the books on prescription that we we see in a lot of libraries today, which is a brilliant resource. Uh, and he said, just just don't worry about what's next. Just kind of just be with what you are now, and 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 read this book and this book. And 
which was mainly about not worrying and 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 again this idea of just kind of looking not at your life's purpose in a very directive way but being open to those places of of innocence and curiosity yes exactly the curiosity that we what did you want to do as a child how did you see things as a child and i noticed that a lot of what I missed the most was the playful things and being able to dance and, and laugh and have joy. And it was, and I suppose I kind of, it was on the back of not finding anything within the uh, conventional medicine that could support me. Uh, And so, yeah, my, my, and that, that led me to look at alternative forms uh, and Reiki and crystals and all those kind uh, kind of alternative ways of healing, and that led me into shamanism. Which and for me, you touched on before. Though a lot of my stories, I think, that come through working in a shamanic way, do feel very kind and very gentle. There are moments that it it does go into really quite dark places, and I think that having that shamanic training supports me to go into those places within myself. So, and although I do still have physical problems, there's a difference in that sense of wholeness and healing. And that comes up very much in shamanism. It's not curing your illness, but it's bringing about this healing, which is sort of in the integrating of the self into into a more, I suppose it's bringing the broken bit, breaking open to bring the broken bits home. Yeah, I think of it like that. Yeah. Yeah. Um it it feels to me as though there is also um a role in clarity through these shamanic practices. So for example, your fairy tale apothecary, um, you you also call it a place of soul speaking. And what interested me about that was you highlighted that as a space for the what ifs. And a bit like you just saying, oh, I really missed playfulness, for example, or, you know, that kind of childlike playfulness perhaps in your life. What ifs are really significant too in that denials, which may often be through lack of trust, lack of courage, can really have negative health manifestations later on in life. And I I wondered whether soul speaking through the storytelling that, that you're practicing is a way of achieving the clarity that we need in order to actually have further empowerment of our own well-being, our own physical and mental health. I'm smiling as I listen to you. Before we started recording, uh, I lit candles in the room that I'm in now and I lit some incense and I offered up a little prayer of help me to speak with clarity. Oh, nice. (laughs) All the things that we we come up before. So so when you say that, yeah, I think we, uh, again, it's coming back to this idea of of the storied child and and what I see is this ability to hold multiple ideas of the world and I've I did um in a library I 
did a reading of Alice in Wonderland and and it was for, on one respect it was great fun because I it was like how badly can I sing <laughs> it was this a, a, a indulgence to do things badly and there's a part in it where there's a song is sung and it was like I'm just going to be so bad the children are going to beg me to stop singing <laughs> the point the point was that they could the children could hold the fact that I was an adult there telling a story, singing a song badly. They could hold that I was the queen of hearts because I had her crown on and I wanted to chop people's heads off. They even put me into therapy and they wrote this little list that I've still got somewhere of all the things I have to do. Like I, I can only shout in the garden and I wasn't allowed to chop people's heads up. They they put me through anger management therapy, these children. <laughs> and as well as at the same time, when we come to, there's a, a, a chapter in it where there's throwing the lobsters out to sea. One of them asked if she could have a different lobster because it was a bit of finger. And I think it's those within story, we can indulge in those what ifs. What ifs, just for that millisecond, we could believe that everything we're meeting in that story, in the best possible way of enchantment, is true and real. That I can change the lobster, that I can give anger management classes, but also I can be with this adult telling me a story. It's those kind of just opening, yeah, the opening and 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 if those what ifs are true, what if I have the courage to step out as I really want to be? So this is really hitting the nail on the head for me now because that phrase, where I really want to be, really speaks to me in terms of your experience of my brain breaking and how you started that new pathway, that it functioned as a new opening. And I wonder how early on into that process you spent your five days alone and unfed in a forest and in terms of how much clarity that gifted you. Uh, it took me 10 years to pluck up the courage <laughs> to uh, to go and, and be in those woods on my own. Um, and uh, there was a point, I was talking to somebody about it the other day, there was a point during those four days where every single day I was going to a yew tree twice a day in the morning and the evening and I was uh, making an offering of prayer. But this prayer was to to tell a, a secret about myself, to tell a truth that felt vulnerable to share. I don't know where this came from. It just spontaneously started happening while I was in, in this woods. Uh, and I think it was probably the third day I had this clarity or this thought or this conviction that this had all this was all my life had ever been, was twice a day making these prayer, these offerings of these places in myself that felt vulnerable. And I was utterly, utterly content that my life was nothing except this moment. Um, but it took me 10, and I'm still trying to figure out what that means. And it will probably be the rest of my life trying to figure out what that means. But it brings such a sense of soothing and peace to my soul, if you like. There's a what I think of the, the arrow of truth that cuts through all the layers of us to a, a, 
a part, a, a tiny core in the center that just, just knows truth. Uh, I can't think of any other way to describe it. I wonder whether like artists, it's, it's a vision. It's a visionary experience. Yes. Yeah. And, uh, and I, I, yeah, I don't think there's any, uh, I, any other way to put it. I think it's a, a constant co-creation. Um, it's, it's that what we touched on before. It's like, it doesn't occur to me not to, um, and, and it becomes a compulsion as well that nothing can get in the way of that creative act, that bringing into the world. We are, again, it's like this idea of, of the uh, midwifery, isn't it? It's, it's maybe part of our purpose is to, is to manifest, to make real, to, to make physical, coming back to this sense of serving the community. Yeah, and it's also interesting that um, touching on uh, that idea again of of being visionary um, is shamans have been characterised as the first artists, um, perhaps reflecting on the artwork that we discover in ancient caves, for example, um, but with a shared relationship to modern artists, um, Vincent van Gogh would be an obvious example, um, someone recognised today as, as a visionary. Um, his vivid expressions, his representations of, of an alternative energy and, and feeling, how he interpreted light and landscape, a human expression, but was rapidly slammed into one of those rigid boxes as mad it was all explained away as madness simply because it was out of the usual realm of establishment art um, and I suppose some of that touches on the happier idea of rebellion for me that artists have have a role in terms of rebellion rebelling against that kind of rigidity that disallows expression that is probably vital for our human development and for our well-being. Yeah, I agree. And and isolating though, isn't it? When you think of it in those terms, that it feels a very isolating thing. And how can this idea of co-creating bring us back into this space that actually we're not alone in this, that we're we're doing something not necessarily for a for a higher purpose, but we are supported, that we can coming back to Jonathan Harwitz of the asking for help, the shaman's job is to ask for help. Um, and we forget that somehow that we don't have to be alone in this endeavor. But we do need to take risks. We do need to have the courage to step forward. I'm thinking as you were talking of visionary artists, I'm going to see it in a couple of weeks. There's a Hilma F. Klimt exhibition on at the Tate Modern. Uh, and she was a Swedish artist who very openly spoke about the fact that she was creating in response to or, or uh, the visions received by spirits or whatever you want to call that because that in itself is a difficult definition or uh, beings from another realm something other something external to her 
But what was really in, and and she was of course dismissed. Nobody took her seriously, and she was ahead. She was one of the the first, probably the. Yeah, I would say one of the first, if not the first, which is a in itself a radical statement to make. Con- uh, contemporary artists, uh, abstract artists, uh, and her work was, of course, dismissed for because. And I think part of it, I don't think it was so much because she was female, but because she was openly speaking about this sense of connection, the sense of creating with something other than herself. But she. The paintings that are on display now, she very clearly stipulated that they could not be exhibited until I think it was, I'm going to make it up so I can't remember exactly, but it was a good probably 50, 60 years after her death. Uh, and we are beginning to see pockets of these, a particularly female artists coming through more now. Um uh, and the surrealist artists like Leonora Carrington and people like that, and their relationship with the occult is being spoken of more now, but it's still very hidden. It's still not openly admitted these ways. As you're saying, it's like you can be an artist, but you still have to fit into what feels comfortable for us. Otherwise, we're going to put you into this other category and you're going to have to deal with all the stigma and uh, uh, and and ways um, and being treated in the ways that we associate with that, like you say, with with the madness. Mm. I wonder whether art is our greatest clue to those other realms that we are so disconnected with today. I would say so, particularly as we as we're saying that it's so hard when you're in the creative act. It it's almost. I'm not saying easy, but it flows easier to find the expression. And so I think that's why so much of it is quite often visionary, visual, as opposed to for my exploration, which is the 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 story, the spoken, the the heard, and that sense of touch in that way. Um and I lost my thread completely there. I'm sorry. So where we were going in your question, I got carried away in the in the creating to forget about the um, how it is to kind of bring it outside of that and the articulate and struggling again with the articulation. <laughs> no, we were just reflecting on how art can actually be our greatest clue to to other realms that we are so disconnected with. You know, sacred, spiritual, however we want to explain explain those other realms I wonder if art yeah is our greatest clue to that yeah because it's the yeah because of where I got lost sorry thank you for bringing me back uh because it's the easiest way to to bring it into a physical manifestation uh a language it's the easiest language if you like the translation or how we as humans can translate it and I'm thinking of uh Actually, there I'm thinking of quite a lot of the religious art and how that can invoke that ecstatic response. And so because we have raced through our hour, Elizabeth, I'm afraid wow. it, always, it always goes very, very fast. I wonder whether we can, before we close, reflect on the series question, can art save us? Um, I don't pose that question with any expectation of yes or no <laughs> answers um it's really there um as a as a as a way of challenging and inspiring um our thoughts about the role of art in our lives and 
beyond simply deciding whether we like art or not? For me, the answer is obviously going to be yes, because I felt many times in my life I've been saved by a, on a personal level um, and in terms of how I might be of service to a community on the shamanic level is through a creative aspects. But I think it's about coming into a deeper intimacy with it, to come into a relationship with it, to see it as a, in whatever format we're viewing or categorizing art, to like you say, to be, go beyond the passive, it's it's there on, on the wall in a, in a museum, if you like, or that it's on a stage with the musician, but to, to allow ourselves to be called, to have the courage to be vulnerable in, in the face of it, to let it really see us. And also uh, a word you used earlier, ordinary. I think to understand our relationship with the arts, with art can be ordinary, that there does not need to be this hijack of elitism of art as something that can only be experienced in museums or galleries uh, or private showcases um, albeit that it's fantastic where we have free access to museums and galleries but that it can be wider and broader and live in the streets and accompany us, that we can all have a relationship with the arts that may benefit us in many more ways than whether we're simply deciding about whether we like something or not. Um, if you could see me, I've been nodding my head in, in uh, enthusiastic agreement with everything you're just saying there. And there's a, a phrase that of walking alongside us. And I think that's absolutely it, that everything we do is constantly a form of creation. We are creating our world in each moment that we breathe it into being. Um, and I think that's an extraordinary thing when we really stop and think of that. How can we not be in artistic conversation all the time. And yes, I agree that it, it doesn't need to be. It's great that works of art are protected and, and preserved and looked after and viewed, as you say, in that way. But it, I don't think it was ever about us and them. And coming back to what you're saying before with the, the handprints, the very, as we say, the very first representations we think of as art is a human handprint. It's that it it's all together. It's not a separation. So sadly, as we have to conclude our our hour uh, that we're we're creeping over rapidly, um, it may be nice to uh, leave the listeners with that idea of why not try a tincture of stories. Why not explore how that may give some freedom to your own mind, to your own thinking, to, to cultivating that curiosity that could serve you really well and perhaps let you face the what ifs and actually take those steps to do something about it? Would you have any final story words of wisdom, Elizabeth, that, that may encourage that? Yes, there's um, 
there's a wonderful little story of a child uh, and there's something under its bed that whispers to it in the in the middle of the night. And it's not scared. The child isn't scared of what whispers to it, but it encourages these what ifs. What if it could be anything it wanted to be in the world? All the child has to do is take one step in the direction of its choosing, not anybody else's choosing. And the child whispers down to this thing under the bed and says, what are you? And the thing whispers back, I'm courage. Perfect. So let's all embrace what's under the bed. Elizabeth, thank you very much for making the time today because I know thank that you. your your research and your work is is very intense. So thank you for, for fitting this in. It's really enlightening to have such an alternative point of view as part of this series. And I, I really do appreciate your time today and, of course, any accompanying story spirits that may have popped up your side. Uh, it's been our pleasure. <laughs> Truly our pleasure. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you very much. And uh, for the listeners, 